Today's scripture comes from Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The word of the Lord. Uh, perhaps this morning it's more real because uh, of the events, but it's really good to see you. And I'm glad all of you are safe. Um, it was nice to keep hearing how many people were safe last night. And as Julie was calling and checking, and people were trying to get over into Rowlett and help the Heart Groves and Heart Groves and all that, that uh, everybody was okay. But it's also sad, much to be thankful for, and yet much to be sad about that uh, 11 people lost their lives last night. And so. Admittedly, it feels a little bit weird uh, being here this morning. I don't think I'd, I don't know if I'd ever think I'd say that. It feels weird to be having a church service when so many people out there are are hurting and we could be doing something, and yet at the same time we're limited in what we can do. Um, so I trust that God has us right where He wants us. And um, if I'm going to be anywhere, I'd rather be with you all. So that's a win. But um, you're probably wondering what we can do for the Hargers and Hargroves. Right now, we can't really do anything. Uh, you have to have proof of residency to get into the neighborhoods because they're getting a lot of spectators driving through and wanting to see and all that. And plus, they've got to get stuff cleaned up. They've got to get power on. So they've got to clear the way for people that actually need to be there and people that belong there. And so I'd love to be able to get a bunch of volunteers this afternoon and go over there and clean up. But um, like someone said this morning, it's not good. We need it to look as bad as possible for them, for insurance adjusters and all that. And so just so they can get as much money as possible. Um, that's, I'm, I'm greedy for them. And so I don't know what the next few days is going to hold, but I'm sure uh, when the time comes, there will be needs. And I have no doubt that uh, we will rally around them and love them well and go above and beyond in um, and loving them well. So... Um, Today we are ending our uh, sermon series on the parables, and uh, we took a break for four weeks for Advent, and we're going to finish up today and next week. Um, actually, next week, if you're a guest, um, today is the last service that this church will ever meet. Uh, today's sermon is so bad that nobody will ever, ever come back. No, we, uh, next week uh, we're changing our name officially, and we're going to be referring to ourselves as Rockwall Presbyterian Church, uh, or the nickname of Rockwall Prez, and so if you come next week and we don't longer call ourselves Trinity Arbor Church and you're wondering what's going on, that's it. Same church, same people, only thing that's changing is the name. Actually, and two services. We're moving to two services next week as well, but we can talk more about that later. But today, we're finishing up our sermon series in the parables, and uh, 
the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Um, Parable about self-righteousness, everybody's favorite topic to discuss. It's not easy to talk about it because it's hard to get people to see that they're self-righteous. I think we all struggle with that. So let me give you a story that I thought of last that I saw a couple weeks ago that I thought, oh, that's perfect, just to see which side you land on. I saw a story where a guy had gone up to two homeless people, two homeless men that were on the side of the road asking for money. So this guy walks up to him, evidently offers him a job. Homeless people say no, or the panhandlers, they say no. And then he goes the next day and he sees them still working there, or still panhandling there. And he makes a sign that says, don't give them money. I offered them a job and they said no. And he stood out there all day next to him. How do you come down on that story? Is he right? Is he justified? Do you want to vindicate that guy or do you want to vindicate the panhandlers? How do you uh, orchestrate your response in your mind? As when I saw people posting this and reposting it and reposting it and saying yes, 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 and then agreeing. It was amazing how much uh, response it got. So what do you think about that story? Who's vindicated? Because that's effectively what we're looking at today is what vindicates us before God. And it puts us, this passage puts us right in the middle of a conversation that Jesus is having with the Pharisees. At the beginning of Luke 17, the Pharisees come to Jesus and they ask him, when will the kingdom come? Coming to test him. When will the kingdom come? And they're asking him, according to you, Jesus, what circumstances and what ingredients have to be present and ready before the kingdom of God will arrive? Jesus responds to them by saying that the kingdom won't come in ways you expect. That's what we said at the very first sermon on the parable of the sower. That the kingdom comes quietly. It doesn't come in ways you expect. It comes as a baby in a manger. It comes as a carpenter working on your house. It comes in quiet and subtle ways that we don't expect. Which means that the kingdom of God defies appearance. It doesn't pass the eye test. Sometimes what looks like the kingdom isn't the kingdom. Sometimes what doesn't look like the kingdom actually is. And that's how we come to our parable today. And Jesus explains it by giving us a short story about two men that go to the temple to pray. One's a Pharisee and one's a tax collector. Now for us, 2,000 years later, it's easy for us to say, hey, I know who the bad guy is as soon as you hear Pharisee. But the truth is it wouldn't be a fair reading if we just immediately jumped in uh, with that kind of posture. We need to kind of understand how Jesus would have said it and what his audience would have, would have responded to or how they would have approached it. Because a Pharisee back then was not a bad word. Pharisees were the good guys. Pharisees were the Billy Grahams, people you looked up to, people you esteemed. Pharisees were people that uh, you wanted your children to be like and you hoped your children had a hero Pharisee or something like that. I don't know if they did or not. But the other way, you looked up to them and you wanted to be like them. It's like, oh, that's a holy man. That's a holy guy. The Pharisees looked like the kingdom. So the challenge right off the bat is for us to try and view Pharisees in a better light. So let's put it in modern terms. A Pharisee was a guy that was at church every Sunday. Always seemed to serve in some capacity. He would greet. He'd work in the nursery might even hold the office of deacon or elder. He was always there, helping to set up chairs. He stayed late after every service. He stayed late after every Saturday workday. 
Most Sundays, he'd already had lunch plans before the service even started because he was constantly living in community with people. He'd been to church his whole life, never had a wild streak in college. He's been to India multiple times, never missed a tithe. He's a respected man and one that you wish that you could be like. His children never act up in church. He's always got a Christian book on his nightstand, and he'll even let you borrow it when he's done with it. And he'll have another great book after that that he'll borrow that meant so much to him. He's always got great advice and always seems to have good wisdom and always seems to know so much more than you do. On the outside, everything looks great. It looks wonderful. It looks exemplary. But Jesus says that this man has a problem. Because while on the outside, everything looks like the kingdom, the problem is that inside, his heart is completely dead. And in reality, he's never, ever encountered God whatsoever. And all of his works, all of his image of righteousness that he presents to the world, keeping up that image, they're actually obstacles to him truly knowing God. Because this man doesn't really think he has a problem. And Jesus characterizes the Pharisee and reinterprets a Pharisee with his prayer. And it says, we see in verse 11, he says, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Sounds like a big humble brag in his prayer. Pretending humility, and yet he's letting everyone know how wonderful he is at the same time. Because it's not a prayer of thanksgiving to a gracious God. It's actually a self-congratulatory, self-indulgent prayer that is filled with nothing but contempt for others and a righteousness that is compared to those that really have none of their own. So it's a bit like this. Imagine that you get a Valentine's Day card. You know, sweetie, I've been, I've been thinking of all the things that I'm thankful for uh, in our marriage, and I just wanted to say that I'm thankful for you. In fact, I'm just thankful for how you let me love you so well. I'm thankful for uh, letting, just letting me take out the trash and all the ways that I can serve you and mow the yard. And I'm thankful that I can clean the kitchen every once in a while. I'm thankful that I, pick out the mov- I let you pick out the movies on our anniversaries. And I'm really thankful that I'm not like your friend's husbands. I know you are too. <laughs> what woman wouldn't want that on every Valentine's Day card, right? So what is Jesus trying to teach us through the prayer of the Pharisee? I think we have to understand how a Pharisee would approach God, and I think it's very similar to how we approach God, or easily the trap we fall into. The Pharisees expected that the kingdom of God, they would answer the question that they asked Jesus by saying, the kingdom of God will come into my life, the kingdom of God will come to Israel, whenever Israel once again becomes faithful to Torah, to the law the first five books of the Bible, when that becomes at the heart of their identity again, that is how the kingdom will come. And you can hear it in his prayer. He he glories in all the ways that he goes above and beyond in fulfilling the law. He says, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But if we take a step back, the truth is, is that the law only requires a fast once a year. And they do it twice a week. They're super fasters. And if you go a little further in uh, the law, he gives tithes of all that he gets. He 
tithes on everything that he gets. So for a Pharisee, um, if he asks you for 10 bucks and you give him 10 bucks, he'll go tithe the dollar and then go spend the money. But the law doesn't require you to do that. It only requires you to tithe on your crops. And the Pharisees were even known to tie the tenth of their spices. Because the story they lived by was that God would bring his, his, his kingdom into their lives and into the world through a surgical precision, or surgical, surgically precise law-keeping, following all the rules. And so, of course, they took pride in the fact that they went above and beyond. You don't get a little bit of pride when you hear somebody struggling with something that you don't? You glory in ways that you don't struggle with something, and yet somebody does. There's something in us that wants to justify me. Because I look at what I do, and somehow that makes me better. So, of course, the, when the kingdom of God actually came for the Pharisees, they saw themselves at the very center of why it would arrive. If we go back to the Pharisee's prayer and we reinterpret it, he's saying, God, look at all that I've done for you. Now it's time for you to show up and respond. It's time for you to vindicate me. In short, the Pharisees wanted a God of justice. They wanted a God that gave them exactly what they thought they deserved. They took pride in all the ways that they exceeded the demands of God's law. And Jesus uses this parable to basically tell them that God doesn't care at all. And verse 14 makes it clear. He says that anyone who approaches God in this way will go home unjustified. And God will have nothing to do with this man. Because in this parable, he says you don't really want a God of justice. Jesus in this parable offers them a God of mercy. He offers them a God of mercy. The tax collector comes to the temple as well, and he can't even lift up his eyes to heaven, and he beats his breast. He's contrite, and he prays a simple prayer, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He doesn't glory in the small things he's done. He doesn't compare himself to other people. He recognizes he's a sinner. And it doesn't really come across in the English translation very well, but the word the tax collector uses when he says the word merciful is actually a word that uh, is it's only used twice in the Bible. It means to propitiate. So if we could reinterpret his prayer, it would go something like this. God, the only hope I have is for you to atone for my sin. I have nothing to offer you. And it's only you that can be merciful to me and save me. And Jesus says, this man went away justified before God. The kingdom does not come into this world or into your life because of how much you do. It comes into this world through something as simple as a man saying, God, I'm a sinner and the only hope I have is your mercy. The kingdom will only come into your life and into this world through broken hearts. And this is a stark contrast to what the Pharisees thought. They thought the law was a means by which you know, God's favor could be earned. Hey, if God wants us to tithe, why not tithe extra? He'll be super happy with us. Hey, if God wants us to uh, fast once a year, let's do it twice a week. But in reality, God never gave his people the law to make them feel confident before him. He never gave it so we could have a list of do's and don'ts. 
and make sure we mind our P's and Q's so that we feel confident before God. It was never intended to bring you to a place where you didn't need a Savior. It was meant to bring you to a place where you did. It was intended for you to be utterly dependent upon God. It's meant to make you begin to ask deeper questions, to draw you towards God and to make you feel helpless. Questions like this. Why is it that I don't like to tithe? Why do I love my money so much? Why is it hard for me to write that check? Why do I covet my neighbor's wife? If this is what God wants, why don't I want the same thing? And this is what David realizes in Psalm 51. He's the one who wrote Psalm 119, most of the Psalms, but the Psalm 119, just this long, it's the longest chapter in the Bible about the law and the beauty of it. This man who has tremendous passion for God's law, and then he commits adultery with Bathsheba. And he realized that no matter how much you tried to keep God's law, the problem is that your heart was corrupt. He realized that his heart was corrupt and still wanted the things that was prohibited by God. Which is why when his heart was finally broken, he asked God for a new heart. He said, my only hope is for you to create in me a clean heart. Because there is nothing I can do to change it. No matter how much I try to keep your law, you can only change it. And I think that's when David realized that that was exactly what God wants. And he said, burnt offerings God does not desire. And he gives a beautiful verse, which is one of my favorites. He said, the true sacrifices of God are a broken and contrite heart. A broken heart, O God, you will not despise. The law brought him to a place where he understood how sinful he really was. And that his only hope was to cry out to God for his mercy. And this is why on the surface, the Pharisees seemed to follow all the rules, but they never actually experienced God. They never needed him. And it's at the same time, you can have a tax collector that never followed the law at all, and yet he walks away justified before God because he knows he's a sinner. And he begs God for his mercy. So the question before you this morning is, if you're never broken over your sin or lament the destruction that it creates or wonder about it, you have to ask yourself, what are you offering to God? What are you offering to him? Is it just an attempt to try harder? Is it a commitment to have better behavior? Are you like a God, are you like a Pharisee where you generally tend to not want a God of mercy? They just wanted a God of justice because they wanted a God to vindicate all of their attempts at righteousness. Maybe a God of mercy is threatening to you like it was to them. Because to embrace a God of mercy requires that you recognize you need mercy in the first place. And we don't like to admit that we're wrong. But I think the law does one more thing. It helps us understand how broken and desperate we are before God. But the law is also something that causes us to move towards others. You might not think of it that way, but it actually does. If you look at most, most of the law, it's actually about protecting those who can't help themselves. It's about protecting the weak, vulnerable, orphans, widows. It has laws that require someone to temporarily, that allow someone to temporarily give their property to someone else 
so that they can work your land if they fall on hard times. It has gleaning laws that prohibit you from taking a full harvest from your crops so that you can leave some for the poor and for the sojourner in your land. The law was supposed to be a tremendous teacher on how to move towards your neighbor with grace and compassion. It taught you how not just to hoard for yourself, but to seek the welfare of another. In short, it taught you how to be like God. It taught you how to be like God who moves towards you when you were weak and helpless, and yet he still lavishes an infinite amount of generosity and grace and love and compassion upon you. Which is why one of the ways you can sum up the entirety of the law is to love your neighbor as yourself. And the hypocrisy that Jesus is pointing out in the Pharisees and that he wants us to see this morning is that the Pharisees claim to know the law backwards and forwards and go so above and beyond in obeying it, and yet they were so filled with contempt for their neighbor. They weren't drawn to the poor, broken, and the sinner. They pulled away from them. And Jesus says elsewhere in Matthew 23 that the Pharisees were all stars at the simple things of the law. He mocks them and he says, Oh, you're great at tithing out of your spice rack. Your mint, your dill, and your cumin, you're wonderful at that. But you're terrible at the weightier matters of the law. You missed it. You neglect matters of mercy and kindness and generosity. So they pick and choose two of the easiest laws in the entire law, which is tithing and fasting. Not that hard. They're simple, you do it and you're done. Take two simple laws and somehow they present themselves as righteous before God because they do it more often than other people. It's like, effectively what Jesus is saying, it's like taking anatomy 101 and being so arrogant that you think you're ready for brain surgery. They took the 101 class in the law, which is tithing and fasting, but they never got to the deeper aspects of it, which is a love for neighbor. A stepping into brokenness instead of running from it. A dependency upon God that allows you to understand that you're no different than any other sinner that you come across. And the Pharisees go even further because instead of going to the sinner, they compare themselves to adulterers and extortioners and tax collectors. So basically, righteousness for them was just basically as long as you didn't cheat on your wife. Well, anybody looks like Mother Teresa when you compare yourself to murderers. It's not that hard. Jesus is saying you are comparing yourself to the wrong person. They claim to be masters of the law. They claim to be super Christians. Yet they never once began to understand the deep, deeper meaning. And the truth is they never got to a place where they longed for God and they missed it. They just wanted God to approve and vindicate their own agendas and their own system of righteousness. How will the kingdom of God come into your life? How do you grow in intimacy with your Savior? How do you save yourself from the sin of a Pharisee? I think it begins by understanding that you are utterly broken and desperately need God's grace and mercy. It's one thing to be able to regurgitate that, but it's a whole other thing to know it and feel it in your heart. And I think the first place we do that is what do you do when you feel your own brokenness? What do you do when you feel guilty about something? Perhaps you buy a new book and read that. Perhaps you recommit yourself to a regular time of prayer and getting serious about fasting. 
Perhaps you find yourself tithing more regularly. The thing is, we take these simple aspects of what we know we should do, and we bring that before God to assuage our guilt, our shame. But over time, if we're honest, nothing changes, does it? We still seem to struggle. We still seem to be that same person, and we don't grow. And when was the last time you prayed over and over again? God, I'm a sinner. Please create in me a clean heart. Because I want to love what you love. I want to want what you want. I want to despise what you despise. But I don't. I desperately need your mercy. Lastly, I think the second place we find self-righteousness is in the place we compare ourselves to others. Out of contempt. We compare ourselves to others to make ourselves feel better. Maybe it's looking down on somebody for their decision as to whether or not to homeschool their children or send them to public school. Or just something that makes you feel like a better parent based on your decision. Maybe it's looking down on parents whose children aren't as well behaved as yours. Maybe you can't stand people that aren't as logical as you or make good decisions. Maybe people that don't have their finances in order the way you do. Or it's election season. Maybe it's having contempt in your heart for someone who posts an article supporting Donald Trump or Bernie Sanders. It's amazing how we choose standards of righteousness that allow us to hate people and to have contempt for them in our hearts, all for the purpose of making ourselves feel justified and vindicated. But Jesus would ask you, have you understood the deeper parts of my good law, to love me and to love others. If you want to look at self-righteousness, just look for the place where you spend more time pointing out someone else's sin than pondering your own. Maybe the kingdom of God will flood into your marriage. And your marriage is thirsty for you to understand and have that broken heart that cries out for God, that cries out for His grace, Maybe the kingdom of God will flood into your marriage when your heart finally breaks over the way you've treated your spouse. Maybe the kingdom of God will flood into your parenting when you begin to understand how gracious your Heavenly Father is towards you. And maybe your friendships will begin to take on a new meaning of satisfaction and joy and be life-giving when you stop being angry at them for what they do or don't do or holding grudges. Maybe you've been going through the motions for a long time. You just kind of do church stuff. Maybe your faith is a constant back and forth of satisfying guilt with trying new things or trying to do better. Today, hear an invitation. Today, hear that you are offered a God of mercy. A tender, gracious God of mercy. Two chapters later after this, this story becomes real. Zacchaeus, the tax collector, sees Jesus. Jesus comes to him. And when he understands his sin and Jesus' kindness to him, he pays back fourfold of everything he ever took from anybody else. What happened in his heart that made him so generously and abundantly want to give back what he'd taken. He began to live a new life of freedom. 
And today you're offered a God that takes murderers and makes them apostles that write half the New Testament. You're offered a God that takes adulterers and makes them mighty kings. They began to live to live a new life when they began to truly, honestly, constantly come before God and say, My God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Your mercy is all I have. And I ask you to create in me a new heart. What new life would you begin to live if you constantly asked the same question? Let's pray. Jesus, you are gracious to us in ways that we will never know. We often compare ourselves to others. We often try to satisfy our own guilt and shame by trying a little harder. Help us to understand that it was never your purpose. Help us to see our sin. Help us to be brave enough to pray, God, show me my sin. I want my heart to break over it. I want to come before you with a broken heart because that you will not despise. It's a brave and scary prayer, but I ask that by your Spirit you would teach us to be that kind of people and that kind of church where we are so aware of our own brokenness that it allows us to be used by you to step into the brokenness of others rather than pushing them away. When we compare ourselves to you, We were found so lacking. So we thank you that by your grace, you promise by your spirit to continue to make us more like you. We ask that you do it and we ask that you do so swiftly. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.